So I actually want to begin our, our message today by talking about one of my favorite children's book series. It's this story of this little monkey who is a little too curious, who goes about getting into trouble because his curiosity just, you know, gets him into no good. Who knows what I'm talking about? Curious George, yes. This was just like my favorite book series growing up. And I think it's because Curious George in most ways is like my spirit animal. Like I relate to this character more than any other character in literature because he just has that natural curiosity, this desire to understand everything that leads him to put things like his finger in light sockets and yada, yada, yada. And I am this embodied in human form. I am literally the person who is the like, most curious, seeker-searching person that you will ever meet. I just always have been. I just can't help but question because I just want to understand everything that I come across from. And as a kid, this actually got me into a lot of trouble. I was 100% that annoying kid who asked why to everything, and then asked it again, and then asked it again, and then asked it again, and drove my teachers crazy, much less my poor mother. She is a saint, right? One of my favorite stories about this, actually, about my curiosity, is that it also applied to boundaries. You see, I was always trying to figure out what rules were for, or why I was being told to do pretty much anything. So in kindergarten, I was having a lot of trouble learning to read. I just couldn't do it. And my teacher went on maternity leave for a couple months, and a sub came in who just got me. And in no time, I was reading back at grade level. Well, she leaves, other teacher comes back, and I picked up quickly that if I don't know how to read, I got more playing time with the blocks. So for a couple weeks, I just acted like I couldn't read because I didn't get why I was being told to in the first place. <laughs> I ended up like not being allowed to go to the playground. I think it was like six weeks. It was like brutal. I mean, you talk about like crucifixion. It was like nailing a kindergarten to the wall. But later in my life, it was actually something that was a huge strength for me, this desire to understand this curiosity. When I went off to college and, and as I've approached careers, this desire just to understand deeply everything I come across has made me a strong historian. It led me to excel at things like political science or even sciences in general because I just looked at these major ideas of humanity, of our world, and I, I would just ask the right questions just to understand. And I was so lucky because all I can say about my life is that I have had all sorts of people at every stage come in and encourage this part of me. I had teachers, mentors, friends, parents, who never got tired of me asking why, because they saw it for what it was. And it just helped me become who I am. And this was true of every part of my world except for one place, which was church. You see, in my church experience, I found the exact opposite of that reaction to all of my questions. I, I came to church as a child, and I had these questions about the things in the Bible that I just wanted to understand. Things like contradictions that I thought were in there. Things like suffering. Things like, I don't know, veggie tales. Like, why are cucumbers telling some of the scariest biblical stories? I just didn't really understand it. But I also had these questions about like, things in my life that made no sense to me. 
Like, I experienced grief for my first time as a child when I lost my grandma. I, I didn't understand my own struggle with depression when I entered middle school, what was going on in my mind. And I came to church wanting to understand these things because they said this is where the answers were. And I started asking my questions. And suddenly, what I found was that they weren't questions. They were called doubts. And those doubts had no business in the Christian life or the church world, I was told. See, what I found in church was the belief that the worst possible sin that I could have was to ask questions or not have certainty. So I left. I never came back. Well, I did. That's later in the story. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but like I was told that to follow Jesus, to have faith, meant that you had to have certainty about everything, which meant that my curiosity, my questioning, my seeking, my doubting just had no place here. It was dangerous, which meant that the gospel story, the good news story of Jesus Christ was not good news to someone like me. It just wasn't. It was, it was a story that was for the insiders, the people with all the answers, the people with certainty, not for the broken, the lost, the people in the dark, the people who just don't understand sometimes. So I found myself as an outsider. And there's a problem with this. You see, there's a problem because when I came back to faith, when I entered into a community that encouraged my questioning, what I came to find was that the Gospels tell an entirely different story than that. You see, in particular, what I came to find was that the people, the characters that were there when Jesus arrives, the one that, that come around him, highlight the exact opposite truth. What I came to find was that Jesus' arrival came first to the last people that we would expect. The people with doubts, the people with questions, the people who were on the outside. And what I came to realize was that Jesus' good news story was a very different tale than the one I had been given. That somehow, some way, Jesus' arrival, this good news of God's coming in Jesus was some way good news for everybody especially the outsiders, the left behind, the unexpected. And that is what we're going to explore in this week, or this series of Advent. See, we're going to dive into these characters that are around Jesus when he arrives, and we're going to look at them because I think each of them teach us that in Jesus we find a new kind of hope, peace, joy, and love. But more than anything, I think what we find in them is that the arrival of Jesus is news that we could actually call good, which is not necessarily the news that the church always gives to people like me. So that's the journey we're going to go on. In this week, we're going to explore a group of characters that many of us probably think that we are familiar with, but as I like to do, I'm going to show you that you're probably not as familiar with them as you think you are. They're some of the most misunderstood characters in the entire birth stories of Jesus. There are characters who are the very definition of who we wouldn't expect to be there in this story. And they're characters whose inclusion in God's arrival, his story of Jesus' birth, what I would tell you, brings a form of good news of peace that for people like me welcomes their seeking, questioning, and doubting. Are you ready to go on that journey with me today? So we're going to begin 
Um, immediately after Jesus' birth, which uh, Elizabeth Wilkes covered last week in our week on hope. And it's this gospel story in the gospel of Matthew that begins in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. What we read is that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw this star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him also. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down to him and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with good gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the first thing I would point out is this is a weird story, isn't it? It's a story about this group of people called the Magi who arrive in Israel at their capital city, Jerusalem, after following a star in search of a king of Jews that they want to worship. When I say it that way, it's a lot more bizarre, isn't it? And in the story is one that we kind of have to unpack because when we look at it piece by piece, we're actually going to see that there's something very powerful taking place in the story that immediately follows Jesus' birth. You see, to begin with, I want to start with our characters today. And like I said, these are some of the most misunderstood and important characters in the birth stories of Jesus, but I think we've become too familiar with them. You see, it's this group of people called the Magi, and they're this mysterious band of people who have arrived in Jerusalem looking for Jesus. And we don't have a lot that we can learn about them from the text at first glance, but actually when you look at it piece by piece, you can kind of start getting some information on who they are and why they are there from it. So I think the first thing that we can learn about who they are is from the title that they are given. Now, many of us have probably grew up hearing them called something else in our retellings of the Christmas story. There's three of them. What are some names for them? Wise men. Any other ones? Kings, yes. So we often hear them called the three wise men or the three kings. And I have bad news. That's no good. I'm going to have to debunk both of those. For one, there's nothing in the text that says there's three of them. They give three gifts at the end. But in likelihood, when you come to understand who they are, there was probably a ton of them. It was probably a lot more. They also aren't kings. They're wealthy. They're important. But they are by no means royalty. You see, this term magi actually gets us a lot closer to who they are. And I want to start by unpacking that a little bit. So when you hear the word magi, what is an English word that it sounds like? Magician. Yes, magic, right? So we are not talking about wise men or kings. We're talking about a band of wandering magicians who have arrived at Jesus' birth trying to find the king of the Jews. And, and if you're like me, this is an incredibly misleading thing, right? Because I think of like Job from Arrested Development. Have you ever seen that? Anyone in this house? Yeah. 
They're not that. <laughs> but I think most of us, when we think of magicians, we think of like party tricksters, right? They pull rabbits out of a hat, they have cards, they play tricks, it's a lot of fun, and you kind of don't know how they got into that career, but that's a whole other story. But in the ancient world, magicians were a very different thing, and they were far more important. You see, in the ancient world, one of the most common religious beliefs was that the stars and the sky were in some way designed by the gods to speak to mortals. In other words, the gods, these divine beings, would manipulate things in the night sky to give us signs, to give us clues, to give us messages, to give us things about predicting the future or their will. And we still have bits of this in our culture today, don't we? Things like horoscopes or astrological signs. These follow this tradition, this belief that in some way our universe was used by these divine beings to speak to us. And one of the most important parts of this belief in this worldview was that there were people who were believed to have developed special skills and knowledge that would help them decipher these divine messages. They would study the cosmos, they would study the movement of stars, lights in the sky, and then they would apply the spiritual gifting and then determine what the gods were trying to tell us, which made them very important. People like kings, powerful people would rely on them, give them loads of money to try to help them lead their kingdoms. And they went by the name magicians, or magi. So we're starting to get who the magi are. They're not wise men, they're not kings. They are, they're more like spiritual astrologers who are traveling, seeking out the messages of the gods by studying the stars and the night skies, trying to figure out divine events and the movement of the gods. And these are who we find in this story which actually begins to make sense of why they're there, right? It says that they followed a star in the sky to Jerusalem searching for a new king. So in their vocation, they believe that the gods have given them some sort of astrological sign that is leading them to this important event. The second thing that we can learn about the Magi actually comes from where they are from and what kind of people they are. And once again, we don't have a ton of information on this. All it says is that they're from the east, which seems really vague. But if you know your Bible, this is actually a really important term. You see, when you see a vague directional sign like that, it usually means one of two things. It could mean that they're from the far east. So places like Persia or Asia. It's just a way of saying from the land really far away to the east, right? It also can mean that it is a way of saying the ends of the earth. So basically, as far as human beings exist on our planet, that is where they are from. But what the text is trying to teach us is simply that these people have come from a very far distance to be here following the star. Scholars would argue that even if they're from the closest place this might mean in Persia, this would have been a 900-mile journey over a year of travel on foot, simply following this star to this location. And the next thing that we can get from this is that these people are definitely not Jewish. You see, they would never say the Jewish people from the East if you lived in Israel, right? Because that is the center of their world. You would say you're from Israel. So what we get from this is that we have this wandering band of 
magicians or spiritual astrologers who are pagan or Gentile, non-Israelites, totally outside of the people of God, coming from a land far, far away. Third, the Magi, if you look at the text, obviously don't know their scriptures, Bibles that well. And they also don't really know where they are going. You see, when you look at their interaction with the teachers of law about where they're trying to find this king, what's the first thing they ask? They say, where is the king, right? If you notice, the teachers in the story give an answer like that. They recite this text from Micah, this prophet of the Old Testament, and they say, well, everyone knows that it's going to come from Bethlehem this town not far away. So what's going on there? Well, one, this text from Micah was incredibly well-known at this time in Israel. It was this longed-for arrival of God's king, and everyone knew that he was coming from Bethel, Bethlehem. So the Magi, like I said, clearly don't know their Bibles all that well. But more than that, if they're asking where they're going, and that means they've been traveling over a year without any clear certainty of where it's going to lead them. They've just been following this star one step at a time, not knowing where it ends. So you have this group of pagan magicians in every way outsiders of God's people who have traveled hundreds of miles with only a vague sense of seeking and being drawn towards the arrival of this new king who they don't even really understand because they haven't even read the Bible all that much. And there's something really important happening in this moment. It's our final point. You see, there's something you might miss. If you know your Old Testament, you would quickly realize that Matthew is saying something explosive in putting this story right after Jesus' birth. You see, in the Old Testament, there are these clues about this moment. This moment that's lighting up who Jesus is and how he falls into place of God's story. It's a major moment of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You see, the Old Testament shows God seeking to renew and restore his fallen and broken world. He sets out by calling a people, the Israelites, to be the first fruits, you could almost say, of this healing project, this restoration problem, our project of everything that's gone wrong. But as a weird twist of faith, the Old Testament ends in limbo. It's actually like an incomplete story. If you've ever read your Old Testament, it just stops. Basically, the Israelites mess up so badly that they're sent into exile from from Jerusalem, from uh, their homeland. And while they're in exile, it seems like the entire story has come to an end. God's people have failed. The story's over. Done. And yet, at the very end of the Old Testament, we find these prophecies. Basically, it's these future predictions of how God is going to ultimately work to fulfill his promises of restoring his world. And at the center of them is the imagery of God bringing about an ultimate kingdom of peace. Specifically, through the arrival of his own chosen king, this figure called the Messiah, this figure called the king of peace. And how are we supposed to know in these Old Testament prophecies when the Messiah has come? Well, there's an image that you'll find repeated over and over again of all the peoples of the world, Israelites and non-Israelites alike, flooding to God, flooding to his king, flooding to worship him once again. So in that light, 
What is Matthew trying to say by ending his story with these magi, these outsiders, arriving at Jesus' birth and worshiping him? What is Matthew trying to tell us when these people who are the epitome of the non-Jewish nations of our world are the first ones to arrive to Jesus, to give him gifts, to worship him as a king? If you know your scriptures, Matthew is saying something explosive. See, what he's saying with the arrival of these magi is that this is the moment that God's people have been longing for since the end of the Old Testament. This is the moment where the king has arrived. The king of peace is here. And now the nations are coming in. I mean, this is the ultimate fulfillment moment the good news moment of peace that God is saying has arrived. But here's where this story gets really interesting to me. You see, if we had started this story without knowing how it ends, who in this story should be the ones seeking, finding, and worshiping Jesus first and foremost? Wouldn't it be anyone else in our story but the Magi? When the Magi arrive, who do they talk to? King Herod, the king of Israel, and then the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders and experts of the Hebrew scriptures, literally the insiders of all insiders of Israel at that time. I mean, these are the people that you go to when you have the questions and you want the answers about what's going on in God's kingdom. These are the people who know their Bibles inside and out. And yet, when the Magi arrive looking for Jesus, what happens? The text says that instead of going to Jesus, these insiders are disturbed. And then they don't even go with the Magi to find him. They just kind of say, you guys go find him. Let us know what you find. Good luck. What is going on here? I mean, what is the story getting at? The insiders who we expect to see Jesus first miss the moment when he arrives. They just miss it. And it's the total outsiders that end up finding him. And I believe that this has something to do with a concept that I want to talk about today, which is certainty. You see, I think that certainty or a perceived certainty is at the heart of this story. We see it in the rest of the gospel story. We read that King Herod is certain that he is the one king. He is certain that God has given him authority, him power, and he is so certain that God has done this that he just can't accept that God is moving through a new king. So he misses it. The chief priests miss out on Jesus and who he is because they have certainty about what God's king is going to look like. If you know anything about first century Judaism, they believed that the Messiah would be a warrior king here to defeat the Romans. So when he shows up as a fragile baby in the middle of nowhere to a poor family with a pregnant woman out of wedlock? No, 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 that's not, where, that's not where our God arrives. We're certain of that. They miss it. Or how about the teachers of law? We read in the gospels over and over again that they miss who Jesus is because they're certain about who God is going to build his kingdom with. It's the insiders, it's the righteous, it's no way it's the sinners and the outsiders. So this Jesus guy calling in all these Gentiles and sinners and outsiders, no, 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 that's not, that's not the Messiah. We're certain of it. 
and they miss it. They have this sense of certainty that just prevents them from seeing what God is doing right in front of them. And the Magi just don't. They don't have expectations. They don't have certainty. They are just following and seeking and trying to find God wherever he is leading them. And they get it. And y'all, I think this is where this story starts to preach. Because I don't know about you, but that is a very human thing to me. I think that many of us can think that peace is the same thing as certainty. See, what we begin to believe is that when it comes to God, what we really need to find is some black and white answers to who he is, how he works, what he does, who he likes. And once we check off those answers, we just never have to think about it again. We can put them away and we got the right answers. And that can feel like a really peaceful place to be, can't it? That can feel really warm and fuzzy, resting in the peace found on the other side of just not having to ask questions anymore. Just not having to have a God that might move outside of our expectations. But there's a problem. You see, for God, our certainty and our peace are not the same thing. For our God, confusing certainty and peace leads us to do one of the worst things we can do. We take a radical, infinite creator of our universe, God, and we put him into a box of our own making. See, we take this God that is infinite beyond how our minds can even comprehend. And we just say, here's a box for you. And in this box, he will never move in ways that we don't expect. He will never invite people we don't like, and he'll never show up in ways we can't predict. Anyone else been there before? Because I know I have which might feel comfortable for us, but this is not peace. You see, what happens when God in his ultimate freedom, love, wisdom, acts to fulfill his purposes in ways totally outside of our expectations and certainties? What happens when God arrives in a small town in the middle of nowhere to the family we'd never expect in the form of a fragile baby being worshipped by a bunch of magicians? What happens when God arrives and blows up our box. I think in that moment, we become the insiders of our story. We become the people that thought we had peace, but really what we have is false certainty that leads us to miss the God right in front of us. I mean, what happens when God acts in a way that challenges our certainty of how he's going to operate acting through situations that we don't expect to find him in. Well, no, God, you wouldn't be found there. We're certain of that. I think we miss him. What happens when God calls and invites and loves the people that we are certain do not belong in his kingdom of peace? The criminals, the murderers, the worst of the worst. Well, no, God, you wouldn't invite them into your kingdom. They're the least expected. They're the broken. They're the outsiders. We're certain of that and what we miss God moving right in front of us. What happens when God creates peace in a way totally outside of what we imagined? Not by being powerful military king, conquering the Romans, but by sacrificially giving himself for the good of the very people who rejected him. Well, no, that's not how our God operates. We're certain of that. And we miss him. I mean... I think that this idea of certainty, when it gets stuck in our human minds, can just lead us to miss the infinite God right 
in front of us in so many ways. And y'all, that may seem like bad news. It may sound like bad news. But I actually think that this story is overflowing with good news if you are anything like me. You see, I think this story teaches me a new way of finding Jesus, and it's about redefining what his true definition of peace is. You see, for me, this story paints a new vision for what peace looks like that I actually could call good news. I think the first thing it shows me is that, and I don't know about you, but this is profoundly good news to me. It tells me that for God in this story, peace is not found in certainty, but rather in being open to mystery. You see, I have found in my life that I have this quest for false certainty where I tell myself if I could just get the right answers, if I could just understand everything, if I could just control enough of my world, then I would have peace in my life. And I don't know about you, but what I have found is that I have never, I will never ever be someone who has all the answers. I will never ever be able to be someone who can control my world outside of the hula hoop around my body. I'll never be someone who gets it all right. Which what, what that does to me is it means I never find peace because I'm always chasing something else. And what happens is I wear myself out and I just get sick chasing it. But in Jesus, the good news is that God tells me that peace can be found a different way. You see, what I get in the story is that peace is found beyond my expectations, my certainties. What I find is that it's found in a God who above all else defines himself by mystery a God that is so much bigger than I am, who moves in ways beyond anything I could comprehend, a God who tells me that no matter what I see in this world, he is still working to build a kingdom of peace in it. And when I can trust that mystery, when I can accept it, when I can accept what God tells me about my limits of control, what I find is that I become more open to his movements, even when they go completely outside of what I expected. See, what I find is that God suddenly gives me this new kind of peace where I can trust that God is the one inviting, calling, leading, and restoring the things and the people that the human part of me says don't belong here. And when I trust that, when I trust that mystery, I have found myself involved in some amazing stories of healing and restoration and peace. Above all, what I have found is that in the very things that scare me, confuse me, and give me hopelessness, I know I can find Jesus right in front of me wherever I'm at because he's a God of mystery. The second thing about peace in this story that's good news is that it tells me that God's peace is available first and foremost to the outsiders, those that we would least expect. And I, I have spent most of my life believing that I belonged in this category that I was a person that never would check off the right boxes because I was broken, I had failed. See, I got told by church that I was someone who was totally outside of what the Bible expected God's chosen people to be. That I was just someone that would always be an outsider, someone whose, God, whose God's peace just wasn't for. Because I was just too messy, I was just too messed up. But in this story, it's not the ones who have their lives totally figured out that find Jesus first. It's not the ones who check off all the checklists. It is the ones who are open to seeking the mystery that find it first. Who finds Jesus at the end of this story? Is it just the ones who set out looking for him? 
Is it not just the ones who long for something new in their lives? They don't have all the information. They don't even know their Bibles, but they know that they want something new and they're willing to move towards it. And those are the ones that find him in the manger and recognize him for who he is. And Jesus, the King of Peace, meets them right where they are at. Do you see an angel come down in this story and explain all the prophecies to them and exactly what's going on and here's what's happening and don't worry about it? You're good now, go home and never think about it again? No. It says that they worship him and they're overjoyed and that's it because they found what they were seeking in the journey. Those who seek, find. Those who are certain never even move in this story. And I think that's a powerful lesson, but I think it's good news because as long as I'm seeking him, I can trust that I will find him. And finally, the last thing that this story tells me, the good news of it is that it tells me peace comes through a God who is not afraid of our questions, seeking, or even doubts. This God is found in the very exercising of those things. Again, I grew up in a church that said doubt was a four-letter word. And yet, what I find here is that God can handle it. See, I was told that God couldn't handle my doubts, that my lack of certainty meant God rejected me. But what I find in this story is that the ones who are questioning are the ones who find him. See, because what I believe is that the questioning shows that we are actually seeking to find him in a deeper way. I think it takes us in that uncomfortable space of unknowing, but it also shows that we have a heart of wanting to find who he really is. So we question, we seek, we doubt, and my, this story tells me that God doesn't reject that because he knows it comes from a deep desire to know him. I don't know about y'all, but I've been someone who has felt deep loss, who's experienced grief of all kinds, who has felt lost in the dark, who has longed for newness, and in all of that has had questions and doubts about what is going on in my life, and to have a story of a God that says that that is okay, that I don't need to be ashamed of that, that I'm not outside of what he's doing because of that, that is good news, that he tells me in the questioning and the seeking that I will actually find him in that place. I mean, is that good news to anyone else? I mean, this story is good news for us. And I don't know where you need to hear it. I, I don't know where it needs to speak to you with where you're at. I'm just going to offer up a few questions to close our time and just reflect on them. You see, I think some of us need to find ourselves in the insiders, in King Herod, the teachers of the law, the high priests. I think some of us have been trying to control our lives so long, and we are just tired. What would it mean for God to tell you that you can surrender and trust within those spaces, that his mystery is bigger than you, that he's going to move outside of your expectations anyway? So just trust me in that and just let go, would that be good news to you? Or maybe you're someone who just needs to find the peace of a new vision of who this Messiah is. Maybe you're like me, and you were just given a vision of Jesus that isn't working for you anymore. It's not helping you. It's not healing you. It's not helping you in your world. It's doing nothing because it's just broken. 
And maybe you just need to open yourself to the wonder again, to the seeking, to the journey. Or maybe you need the peace of realizing that God does not want you or need you to be his gatekeeper. Maybe you need, maybe you've just spent all this energy trying to decide who's allowed in, who's supposed to be kicked out, and it's just run you sick. What would it look like to trust that God is inviting and calling and healing who he wants to? And just to be okay with that and love them as they are. Or maybe you're like the Magi. Maybe you're like me. Maybe all you need to hear today is that you are not an outsider that what you've done doesn't matter, that this God does not exclude you from his kingdom because you're broken. He's calling you into it first and foremost. Maybe you need to be here, the Magi story, that this is good news for you, even if you've never met this king. Maybe you need to hear the Magi and that they're telling you that the seeking you've done your whole life is not wrong because it's led you a little bit closer to him who brings peace. Or maybe you just need to hear that in your pain, your loss, your grief, your plain old disappointment, that you are allowed to feel doubt. You're allowed to question. You're allowed to sit with that because if you do it the right way, God will work through it to bring you closer to his kingdom and who he truly is. We have a God that tells us that peace is found in the mystery of searching seeking, and finding on the other side of it. Does anyone need to find that God in this Advent season? I know I do. And I trust that if I follow that God, I will find the King of Peace at the end of that journey. And so will you. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm now going to uh, introduce a dear friend of mine, uh, Connor Mooneyhan. So one of the things that we've been doing as part of this, yeah, you can applaud. Yeah, you can <laughs> One of the things that um, we've been doing is, is having people in our community respond to each of the weeks. Basically, what does it mean that this God who comes in human form and dwells with us, what does it mean to them personally? Since we're talking about good news becoming real, we figured it'd be great to hear from some people and how that has become a reality in their life. So Connor is going to share with you all this week about peace and what it means to him, and he's going to do a great job. So Connor Mooneyhan. I am Connor Mooneyhan. <laughs> For each of these words we meditate on during Advent, I think about the fact that I experience all of them most strongly when I've been consumed by their absence. I experience hope most fully when I've been hopeless, joy when I have no joy, and love when I feel unloved or even unloving. So as I was writing this, I thought about what it looks like for me to be peaceless. And for me right now, peacelessness is most present in my mornings. It's not always the same issues that bother me, but there's almost always something. At this point, most mornings begin with a deep sigh and recognition that I'm out of my dream world now. And uh, yes, I do have to get out of bed and face another day. Sleep becomes not only a tool for rest, but also an opportunity to escape from reality. I know this isn't how things are supposed to be. See, peace to me means resting in God and acknowledging God's presence in every moment. And not just on an immediately conscious level, but in a deeper sense where my soul is content to accept the happenings of the day with non-judgment. 
I was always taught that this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And that's perfectly lovely, except that, of course, this rarely helps me in practice. In fact, that word practice has become key for me in determining what it might look like to truly accept the peace that God extends to me, and it so desperately wants me to take in each moment. Each morning, I have to take a few minutes to close my eyes and practice silently focusing on the presence of Christ, (coughs) accepting any distractions that arise, and then refocusing on Christ's presence. This centers me, at least for a little while, and it builds in my soul the spiritual muscle memory that allows me to to access that peace throughout the day when I inevitably lose track of it. I don't implement it perfectly, but even still, God has tremendously blessed me though it has through it as it's become the primary way that I grow in learning to accept the peace of Christ, the very same Christ who longed to experience the same struggles as I do and completely humbled himself in order to do so. With that, I'd like to leave you with some lyrics to an old hymn that I think begins to put into words the peace of Christ that by his grace I've begun to experience. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.